Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. Good afternoon. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me here today. It's really an honor to be here, and I'm thrilled to see so many of you here eager to join in meaningful dialogue, meaningful conversation about this system of mass incarceration in the United States, a system that has decimated so many of our communities, destroyed so many families, and literally turned back the clock on racial progress in the United States. It seems fitting um, that this dialogue would be taking place during Black History Month, a time when many Americans pause to consider, if only briefly, our nation's racial history our racial present, and our collective future. And this year marks the 150th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. And so it seems more than appropriate to reflect on the meaning of that proclamation, indeed the meaning of emancipation in this era of mass incarceration. And this year also marks the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington. 50 years have passed since Dr. King delivered his soaring, I have a dream speech, I have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. And so in reflecting on where we stand today, 150 years after the Emancipation Proclamation and 50 years after the March on Washington, I'm going to take Martin Luther King Jr.'s advice and tell it straight. As Dr. King put it quite bluntly just months before his death, after the civil rights victories had already been won, after the civil rights bills had already been passed, he said, quote, I do not see how we will ever solve the turbulent problem of race confronting our nation until there is an honest confrontation with it and a willing search for the truth and a willingness to admit the truth when we discover it. And so in that vein, I'm going to do my best to tell the truth, the whole truth about race in America today. It is a truth that many Americans will deny, just as they were eager to deny the truth about slavery and Jim Crow in their days. But the truth is this. We as a nation have taken a wrong turn in our stride toward freedom. We've betrayed Dr. King's dream. And perhaps nowhere is it more obvious than right here in the city of Chicago. In this great city, President Barack Obama's hometown, 
a vast new racial undercast has emerged, though their plight is rarely mentioned on the evening news. Occasionally, we hear about the homicide rate, the violence that has been spinning out of control, not everywhere, but in certain spaces, certain places, certain communities defined largely by race and class. 108 young people were killed in this city last year alone. Hundreds more were killed with scarcely any notice in the media, just another black man gunned down, another body in the street. When Hedia Pendleton was killed, though, the national media took notice, at least for a moment. She was a 15-year-old girl in the wrong place at the wrong time, according to the police. The killing of Hedia Pendleton, an honor student shot dead just days after she performed at President Obama's inauguration, became a symbol of the city's stubbornly high homicide rate and something of a pawn. She became something of a pawn in the national debate over gun control. Now, I am grateful, very grateful, that we are having a national debate about gun control. And for the moment, at least, politicians and the media are paying attention to the deaths of black and brown school children, not just white children killed by deranged mass murderers. But I am deeply disturbed that in this national debate about violence and gun control, there is little honest discussion of why, truly why, some communities are war zones while others are not. For while I support gun control and background checks and all the rest, let me be very clear about that, I think we have got to admit that the reason that some communities are war zones and some are not is not at bottom about the number of guns in those communities. After all, I live in a community where I've come to learn that many of my white neighbors own guns. But my neighborhood is safe. At bottom, what makes a community safe is not the number of guns, but the number of good schools, the number of good jobs, the number of educational opportunities, the numbers of opportunities people have for living a decent life. Those are the numbers that matter most when it comes to violence. And in Chicago, as in so many other cities and communities across America, a choice has been made. It is a deliberate choice. And it is a choice that has been made over and over and over again. Rather than good schools, we have been willing to build high-tech prisons. Rather than create jobs and invest in the communities that need it most, we have embarked on an unprecedented race to incarcerate that has left millions of Americans permanently locked up or locked out. William Julius Wilson has written an excellent book about the changes that have occurred in Chicago and other communities around the country entitled When Work Disappears. And in that book, he cites statistics showing that when you control for joblessness, 
When you control for joblessness, the racial disparities and violent crime disappear. In other words, if you compare white jobless men with black jobless men, rates of violent crime are roughly the same. Men who are jobless, particularly chronically jobless, are more likely to be violent. Now, joblessness does not excuse violence by any means. Most people who are jobless do not resort to violence. But what we know, and what is no secret, is that communities that are plagued by exceedingly high levels of joblessness are likely to be violent. But a shift occurred here in Chicago and in communities across America, urban communities, beginning in the late 50s, early 60s, into the 1970s, where work disappeared. It used to be that factories would be located in urban areas near segregated black communities so those factories could have quick and easy access to cheap black labor. In fact, as late as 1970, more than 70% of all African Americans working in the Chicago area held blue-collar jobs, factory jobs. Almost overnight, those jobs vanished. By 1987, the industrial employment of black men had plummeted to 28%. Due to deindustrialization, globalization, technological advancement, factories closing down, jobs moving overseas, hundreds of thousands of people, overwhelmingly black men, found themselves suddenly jobless, trapped in racially segregated, jobless communities. Trapped. Economic collapse occurred in urban areas across the country. Now, we could have responded to this crisis, to this literal depression occurring in cities like Chicago and Baltimore and Philadelphia and Detroit and beyond. We could have responded to this crisis, this economic collapse, this literal depression with an outpouring of care, compassion, and concern. We could have responded with bailout packages, economic stimulus programs. We could have provided job training, particularly to young people coming up in these communities, so they could make the rough transition from an industrial economy to a service-based economy. But no, we chose a different road a road more familiar when it comes to matters of race. We chose the road of division, punitiveness, and despair. We, as a society, ended the war on poverty and declared the war on drugs. Black men found themselves suddenly disposable, no longer necessary to the functioning of the U.S. economy, precisely at the same moment that a backlash was brewing against the civil rights movement, a backlash that made it convenient for politicians to demonize black men as criminals, as shiftless, as unwilling to work. And so this war on drugs was declared and black men found that they were no longer needed to work in the fields no longer needed to labor in factories, 
and they found themselves scapegoats, pawns in political games, the enemy in a new war, and were rounded up by the millions, locked up, and then permanently locked out. And now, decades later, we stand back and say, what's wrong with these people? Why are they killing each other? Why is there so much violence in these communities that we have abandoned? Communities where good schools cannot be found, but high-tech prisons are a drive away. What's wrong with them? I think the deeper question, the more profound question, is what is wrong with us? Why have we been silent for so long? Well, I've been asked to share with you the thesis of my book, The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. And I think the title of the book pretty much speaks for itself. I argue that today, in the so-called era of colorblindness, and yes, even in the age of Obama, and even right here in Obama's hometown, something akin to a caste system is alive and well in America. The mass incarceration of poor people of color in the United States is tantamount to a new caste system, one that shuttles our children from decrepit, underfunded schools to these brand-new high-tech prisons. It is a system that locks poor people, overwhelmingly poor folks of color, into a permanent second-class status nearly as effectively as earlier systems of racial and social control once did. In my view, this new system is the moral equivalent of Jim Crow. Now, I'm always very willing, very happy to admit that there was a time that I didn't think this way that I rejected this kind of talk out of hand. A time when I viewed advocates and activists who were calling the drug war, mass incarceration, the new Jim Crow, I thought they were exaggerating, engaging in hyperbole. In fact, there was a time when I thought that people who made those kinds of claims and those kinds of comparisons were actually doing more harm than good to efforts to reform our criminal justice system and achieve greater racial equality in the United States. But I finally woke up. And I woke up after years of working as a civil rights lawyer and advocate, representing victims of racial profiling and police brutality, and investigating patterns of drug law enforcement in poor communities of color, and attempting to assist people who had been released from prison as they faced one closed door after another, one legal barrier to their supposed re-entry after another. Trying to assist people re-enter into a society that had never shown much use for them in the first place. That I had a series of experiences that began what I call my awakening. I began to awaken to the reality that our criminal justice system now functions more like a system of racial and social control than a system of crime prevention and control. As I stated in the introduction, what has changed since the collapse of Jim Crow 
has less to do with the basic structure of our society than the language we use to justify it. In the era of colorblindness, it is no longer socially permissible to use race explicitly as a justification for discrimination, exclusion, and social contempt. So we don't. Rather than rely on race, we use our criminal justice system to label people of color criminals and then engage in all the practices that we supposedly left behind. Today, it is perfectly legal to discriminate against criminals in nearly all the ways in which it was once legal to discriminate against African Americans. Once you're labeled a felon, the old forms of discrimination, employment discrimination, housing discrimination, denial of the right to vote, exclusion from jury service, suddenly legal. As a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it. But it took me a while to get to that place. And like a lot of people, I was in deep denial. Even as I was working as a social justice advocate, as a civil rights lawyer, I thought I knew what was going on. I was disturbed. I was even appalled by the high numbers of black men cycling in and out of our prisons and jails. But I thought, well, that can be explained by the high rates of poverty and bad schools and broken homes, the legacy of inequality. Somehow it didn't occur to me that black folks had been poor for a long, long time and uneducated for a long, long time, but nothing like the system of mass incarceration had ever existed before. Somehow it was easy for me to rationalize what I saw because of the prevailing myths about this system of mass incarceration that are fed to us in countless ways that I was fed in many respects in law school and that were fed through the media. But I had one experience that finally began to open my eyes, that shook me to my core. It involved a young African-American man who was about 19 years old who walked into my office and forever changed the way I viewed not only our criminal justice system, but how I viewed myself as a civil rights lawyer and advocate. And at the time, I was directing the Racial Justice Project for the ACLU in California. And we had just launched a major campaign against racial profiling by the police. We called it the DWB campaign, or the Driving While Black or Brown campaign. And we had created a hotline number for people to call if they believed they had been stopped or targeted by the police on the basis of race. And we put this hotline number up on billboards in Oakland and communities like San Jose and Sacramento, urging people to call the hotline number if they believe that they've been stopped or targeted by the police on the basis of race. And in fact, within the first few minutes that we announced this hotline number on the evening news, we received thousands of calls. Our system crashed temporarily. We had to expand our capacity to deal with the volume of calls that we were receiving. And so I was spending my day interviewing one young black or brown man after another who had called the hotline to report discriminatory stops or searches or abuse by the police. And it was very late in the day, late in the afternoon, and I was getting tired, not eager to go through yet another round of interviews. 
And this young man walks in carrying a stack of papers, a thick stack of papers about this thick. He had taken detailed notes of his encounters with the police in Oakland over about a nine-month period of time. He had descriptions of every stop, every frisk, every time his car was pulled over and searched. He had descriptions of every encounter as well as names of witnesses, who was there, who could corroborate what the police said and what they did. And on top of that, he had names of officers, in some cases even badge numbers of officers. He just had an unbelievable amount of documentation and detail about this pattern of stops, searches, harassment he had been experiencing by the Oakland police. And the stories he was telling were corroborated by other stories we had heard coming out of his neighborhood about what the police were, were doing there. And so I started to think to myself, well, maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the one. Maybe he can be our named plaintiff in the class action suit or planning to file against the Oakland Police Department, alleging pattern of practice of profiling and discrimination. And so I started to get excited. I started asking him a bunch of questions, more questions, get more details. And I think, yes, actually, he's a good-looking young man. He'll do well in the media. The jury will like him. He's well-spoken. thinking, he's the one. And then he said something that made me pause. And I said, um, what, did, what did you say? What, what did you say? Did you just say, you're a drug felon? We had actually been screening people um, with felony records. When people would call our hotline number, we would send a form to them to fill out asking them a bunch of questions about their experiences with the police, including, have you ever been convicted of a felony? We believed we couldn't represent someone as a named plaintiff in a racial profiling suit if they had been convicted of a felony because we knew that if we did, law enforcement and the media would be all over us saying, well, of course, the police should be keeping their eye on him. He's a felon. He's a criminal. And we knew that we wouldn't be able to put someone with a felony record on the stand as a named plaintiff in a racial profiling case without them being cross-examined for an hour in front of the jury about their prior criminal history, thus distracting the jury's attention away from the law enforcement conduct and turning it into a trial about a young man's prior criminal past. And so we had been screening people with prior criminal records, and he had not marked it on his form, checked the metaphorical box. And so I'm sitting there looking at him saying, did you, you know, did you just say you're a, a drug felon? And he gets quiet, and he says, finally, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm a drug felon, I'm a drug felon, but let me tell you what happened to me. Let me tell you what happened. Police planted drugs on me, they set up me and my friend, they, they beat us up, they framed us. He starts telling me this long story about how he'd been framed by the police, and the police planted drugs on them, beat them up, and I'm just saying, oh, I'm sorry. I am sorry, I'm not gonna be able to represent you if you have a felony record. And I tried to explain to him why that was the case and how I could understand that why it would seem unfair or wrong. He keeps trying to give me more information, more details. Now he's giving me the names of those officers, their badge numbers, who can corroborate that story. And I just, I am sorry. I am sorry, I am not going to be able to represent you. And then he starts insisting upon his innocence. I'm innocent, I'm telling you, I just, I just took the deal. I just took the plea deal because they told me if I just took the deal that I could just walk. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have to do a day in prison if I just 
took the, took the deal, I just get felony probation, that's it. It would just be felony probation, and, and that's it. I, I was innocent, but I, I didn't want to do the time. I was scared of going to prison. I just, I just took the deal, but I'm telling you, I didn't do it. I'm telling you the truth. I am sorry. I cannot represent you. And then he becomes enraged, and he says to me, you're no better than the police. You're no better than the police. The minute I tell you I'm a felon, you just stop listening. You just can't even hear what I have to say. He says, what's to become of me? What's become of me? He says, I can't get a job anywhere because of my felony record, anywhere. He says, I, I, can't, I can't even get housing. He says, I can't even get access to public housing because of my drug felony. Where am I supposed to sleep? He says, you know, I sleep in my grandma's basement at night because nowhere else will take me in. So how am I supposed to take care of myself as a man? So I can't even get food stamps. I can't even get food stamps to feed myself. What's to become of me? He says, good luck finding one young black man in my neighborhood they haven't gotten to yet. They've gotten to us all already. And he snatches all those papers up, all those notes, and just starts ripping them up into tiny little pieces. He's throwing them in the air. It's just snow and white paper in my office. And he walks out yelling at me, you're no better than the police. I can't believe I trusted you. Well, several months after that, I'm doing a public access television show that was broadcasting live out of his neighborhood. I was doing public access TV because we were trying to organize several thousand people to get on buses and go to the state capitol to protest the governor's refusal to sign racial profiling legislation. And so we had been holding town hall meetings up and down the state, been doing a big media campaign, and it was just a couple of days before the demonstration, and I was doing public access TV in his neighborhood trying to urge people to get on the bus and go to the demonstration. Well, immediately after that show goes off the air, it was broadcasting live, the minute it goes off the air, he comes bursting into the studio, carrying this dirty potted plant. And he comes rushing up to me, and he's emotional, on the verge of tears, and he comes rushing up to me, and he thrusts this plant in my arms, and he says, I'm just here to tell you I'm sorry. Just here to tell you I'm sorry. I've been seeing you on the news. I've been seeing you out there trying to fight for our people, trying to do the right thing, and I shouldn't have treated you like that. I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. So I would have bought you some flowers, but I still don't have any money, so I snatched this plant off my grandma's front porch. <laughs> here. Hands it to me. And then he turns around and takes off. He goes running out of the building. And I go chasing after him. He jumps into this broke-down car and disappears. Well, several months after that, I'm in my office, I open up the newspaper, and what's on the front page? The Oakland Riders police scandal is broken. Turns out that a gang of police officers, otherwise known as a drug task force, had been planting drugs on suspects, beating folks up in his neighborhood, and who's identified as the main officer, one of the main officers charged with planting drugs on suspects and beating folks up? Well, it was the officer that he had identified to me as planning drugs on him and beat up him and his friend. And it really was only then, I'm embarrassed to say, that it was really only then that the light bulb finally started to go on for me. And I thought to myself, he's right about me. I am no better than the police. 
The minute he told me he was a felon, I just stopped listening. I couldn't even hear what he had to say. And that was the beginning of me asking myself some hard questions of myself as a civil rights lawyer and advocate. How am I actually replicating the very forms of discrimination, marginalization, and exclusion I'm supposedly fighting against? And I also started asking some questions about the system itself. Why was it that we hadn't been able to find a single black man from his neighborhood they hadn't gotten to yet? What was really going on? And that was the beginning of my journey of asking myself and others a lot of hard questions, doing an enormous amount of research, and listening more carefully to the stories of those cycling in and out of our prison system. And what I learned in that process was that my great crime wasn't in refusing to represent an innocent man. My great crime was in imagining that there was some path to racial justice that did not include those we view as guilty. And I also learned some facts that blew my mind. I learned there are more African-American adults under correctional control today, in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. I learned that as of 2004, more black men were disenfranchised than in 1870, the year the 15th Amendment was ratified, prohibiting laws that explicitly deny the right to vote on the basis of race. Now, of course, during the Jim Crow era, poll taxes and literacy tests operated to keep black folks from the polls. Well, today, in some states, felon disenfranchisement laws accomplish what poll taxes and literacy tests ultimately could not. A black child born today has less of a chance of being raised by both parents than a black child born during slavery. And this is due in no small part to the mass incarceration of black men. The first article to appear in the mainstream press, I believe, about this was in The Economist magazine, entitled How the Mass Incarceration of Black Men Harms Black Women. And in the article, it was explained that the majority of black women in the United States, including about 70% of black professional women, are unmarried and that this is due largely to the mass incarceration of black men, which takes them out of the dating pool, the years they would be most likely to commit to a partner or to a family. But what's worse is that by branding them criminals and felons at early ages, often before they're even old enough to vote, they're rendered permanently unemployable in the legal job market for the most part, virtually guaranteeing that most will cycle in and out of prison sometimes for the rest of their lives. Now, this isn't a phenomenon that affects just some small segment of the African-American community. No, to the contrary, in major urban areas in the United States today, more than half of working-age African-American men now have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. It was reported a number of years ago that here in Chicago, right here in Chicago, if you take into account prisoners, if you actually count them as people, and of course, you know, prisoners are excluded from poverty statistics and unemployment data, 
know, thus masking the severity of racial inequality in the United States. But if you actually count prisoners as people in the Chicago area, nearly 80% of working age African American men have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. These men are part of a growing undercast, not class caste, a group of people defined largely by race, relegated to a permanent second class status by law. Now I find that today when I tell people that I now, that I now finally <laughs> believe that mass incarceration is like a new Jim Crow, a new caste-like system, people react with the shock disbelief. They say, how can you say that? How can you say that? Our criminal justice system isn't a system of racial control, it's a system of crime control. And if black people just stop running around committing so many crimes, you won't have to worry about being locked up and then stripped of their basic civil and human rights. But therein lies the greatest myth about mass incarceration, namely that it's been driven simply by crime and crime rates. It's just not true. Our prison population quintupled within a 30-year period of time. Not doubled or tripled, but quintupled within a 30-year period of time. We went from a prison population of roughly 300,000 to we're now have an incarcerated population of well over 2 million, the highest rate of incarceration in the world. But this can't be explained simply by crime or crime rates. During that 30-year period of time when our incarceration rates quintupled, crime rates in the United States fluctuated. They went up, they went down, they went back up again, went down again. And today, as bad as crime rates are in places like Chicago, nationally, crime rates are at historical lows. But incarceration rates have consistently soared. Most criminologists and sociologists today will acknowledge that crime rates and incarceration rates in the United States have moved independently of one another. Incarceration rates, especially black incarceration rates, have soared regardless of whether crime is going up or down in any given community or the nation as a whole. So what explains the sudden explosion in incarceration rates, the birth of a prison system unprecedented in world history? If not, simply crime and crime raids? Well, the answer is the war on drugs and the get tough movement, that wave of punitiveness that washed over the United States. Drug convictions alone, just drug convictions alone, accounted for about two-thirds of the increase in the federal prison system and more than half of the increase in the state prison system between 1985 and 2000, the period of our prison system's most dramatic expansion. Drug convictions have increased more than 1,000% since the drug war began. I mean, to get a sense of how large a contribution the drug war has made to mass incarceration, consider this. There are more people in prisons and jails today just for drug offenses than were incarcerated for all reasons in 1980. Now, most Americans violate drug laws in their lifetime. Most do. You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> but the enemy in this war has been racially defined. Not by accident, this drug war has been waged almost exclusively in poor communities of color. 
Even though studies have consistently shown now for decades that contrary to popular belief, people of color are no more likely to use or sell illegal drugs than whites. That's right, or sell. Now that defies our basic racial stereotypes about who a drug dealer is. If you picture a drug dealer in your mind, who do you see? There was actually a study conducted on this subject in the mid-1990s, a national survey. People were asked, close your eyes and picture in your mind a drug criminal. More than 95% of respondents pictured an African-American. Less than 5% pictured someone of any other race or ethnicity. So when Americans think of drug crime and drug criminals, they typically think of black folks. But the reality is that people of all races and ethnicities use and sell drugs. In fact, where significant differences in the data appear, some studies suggest that white youth are more likely to engage in illegal drug dealing than black youth. Drug markets are fairly segregated by race. Black folks tend to sell to blacks, whites tend to sell to each other. Drug markets are even segregated by class. University students sell to each other. Right? Drug dealing happens in all communities of all colors, but those who do time for drug crime are overwhelmingly black and brown. In some states like Illinois, 80 to 90% of all drug offenders sent to prison have been one race, African-American. Now, I know that many people, when they actually see the disparities, see the data, will say, yeah, that's a shame. That's a shame, but you know, we need to get tough on them. Them in the hood, because that's where the violent offenders are. That's where the drug kingpins are. We need a war on them. In fact, in my experience, many people seem to imagine that the war on drugs was declared in response to the emergence of crack cocaine in inner city communities and the related violence. In fact, for a long time, I believed that, but it's just not true. The current drug war was declared by President Ronald Reagan in 1982, before crack began to ravage inner city communities and spawn a wave of violence. President Richard Nixon was the first to coin the term a war on drugs, but President Ronald Reagan turned that rhetorical war into a literal one, and at the time he declared his drug war, drug crime was actually on the decline, not on the rise, and less than 3% of the American population even identified drugs as the nation's most pressing concern. So why declare an all-out war on drugs when drug crime is actually declining, not on the rise, and the American public isn't too much concerned about it at the moment? Well, the answer is from the outset, the war on drugs had relatively little to do with genuine concern about drug addiction or the harms of drug abuse, and much to do with politics, racial politics. Numerous historians and political scientists have now documented that the war on drugs was part of a grand Republican Party strategy known as the Southern Strategy of using racially coded get tough appeals on issues of crime and welfare to appeal to poor and working class whites, particularly in the South, who are anxious about, resentful of, fearful 
of many of the gains of African Americans in the civil rights movement. Now, I think to be fair, we have to acknowledge that poor and working class whites really had their world rocked by the civil rights movement. You know, wealthy whites could send their kids to private schools, give their kids all of the advantages that wealth has to offer. But poor and working class whites, many of whom were themselves struggling for survival, many of whom in the South were themselves illiterate, they faced a social demotion. It was their kids that might get bused across town to go to a school that they believed was inferior. It was their kids and themselves who were suddenly forced to compete on equal terms for limited jobs with this whole new group of people they've been taught their whole lives to believe were inferior to them. And then, to make matters worse from their perspective, affirmative action programs created the perception that black folks were now leapfrogging over them on their way to Stanford, Yale, Harvard, University of Chicago and off to corporate America. And this state of affairs created an enormous amount of fear, anger, resentment, anxiety, but it also created an enormous political opportunity. Pollsters and political strategists found that thinly veiled promises to get tough on them, a group not so subtly defined by race, could be enormously successful in persuading poor and working class whites to defect from the Democratic New Deal coalition and join the Republican Party in droves. It was part of the effort to flip the South from blue to red with coded racial rhetoric and getting tough on crime and, and welfare. In the words of H.R. Haldeman, President Richard Nixon's former chief of staff, he described the strategy this way, quote, the whole problem is really the blacks. The key is to devise a system that recognizes this while not appearing to. Well, they did. And a couple years after the drug war was announced, crack began to ravage inner city communities. And the Reagan administration seized on this development, actually hiring staff whose job it was to publicize inner city crack babies, crack dealers, the so-called crack whores, and crack-related violence. Many people in here may be too young to remember that there was a time when our television sets were saturated with news about crack babies and crack dealers and images of black men in handcuffs and orange jumpsuits in courtrooms as communities were swept and raided. The demon drug crack hit the news. And as drug crime and blackness became conflated in the media, a wave of punitiveness swept over the United States. Legislators started passing harsh mandatory minimum sentences for minor drug crime sentences harsher than murderers receive in many other Western democracies. And soon, Democrats began competing with Republicans to prove they could be even tougher on them than their Republican counterparts. And so it was President Bill Clinton who escalated the drug war far beyond what his Republican predecessors even dreamed possible. And it was the Clinton administration that championed the laws banning drug offenders from federal financial aid for schooling upon release, banning drug offenders and people with criminal records from public housing 
It was the Clinton administration that championed the federal law denying food stamps to people with drug felonies. To a large extent, so many of the rules, laws, policies, and practices that constitute the basic architecture of this new caste system were championed by a Democratic administration desperate to win back those so-called white swing voters, folks who had defected from the Democratic Party in the wake of the civil rights movement. But of course, there were more than a few black politicians and black voices that were saying, get tough too. The crack epidemic in particular had created violence that was spinning out of control. And fear was sweeping many communities about what this drug was doing. And one thing that has become abundantly clear to poor communities of color is that if you ask for good schools, you aren't likely to get them. You ask for jobs or economic investment, you won't get that either. But what we've learned is that the one thing poor folks of color can ask for and get are police in prisons. But it seems we got more than we bargained for. For now, here we are, decades later, with millions of people cycling in and out of prison, trapped in a perpetual undercast. Now, I find that still many people who are familiar with this racial history will say, well, that's a shame, too. But we still need to get tough on them, declare a war on them, because that is where the violent offenders are and the drug kingpins. What people don't realize is that this drug war has never been focused primarily on rooting out the violent offenders or the drug kingpins. Federal funding in this war has flowed to those state and local law enforcement agencies that have boosted the sheer numbers of drug arrests. It's become a numbers game. State and local law enforcement agencies have been rewarded in cash through programs like the Edward Byrne Memorial Grant Program for the sheer numbers of people arrested for drug offenses, virtually guaranteeing that law enforcement will go out looking for the so-called low-hanging fruit, stopping, frisking, searching as many people as possible to boost their numbers up. And the results have been predictable. The overwhelming majority of people arrested in the drug war have been arrested for nonviolent, relatively minor offenses. In fact, in the 1990s, the period of the greatest escalation of the drug war, nearly 80% of the increase in drug arrests were for marijuana possession, a drug less harmful than alcohol or tobacco, and at least, if not more prevalent, in middle-class white communities and on college campuses as it is in the hood. But by waging this drug war almost exclusively in the hood, we've managed to create a vast new racial undercast in an astonishingly short period of time. Now, where has the US Supreme Court been in all of this? Well, far from resisting the rise of mass incarceration, the US Supreme Court has eviscerated Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches and seizures. The U.S. Supreme Court has granted the police license to stop, frisk, search just about anyone, anywhere, as long as they get consent. And what is consent? Well, consent is when a police officer walks up to a young man. The officer has one hand on his gun and says, son, will you put your arms up in the air so I can frisk you, see if you got anything on you? The kid says, uh-huh. 
That's consent, and that young man just waived his Fourth Amendment protections against unreasonable searches and seizures. The police do not have to have a shred of evidence, no reasonable suspicion, no probable cause, nothing to engage in that search and that encounter. And while that may seem like no big deal, just an inconvenience, momentary humiliation, that gets played out over and over and over and over again. The New York Police Department reported that in one year alone, one year alone, they stopped and frisked more than 600,000 people. In one year alone, overwhelmingly black and brown men. But the U.S. Supreme Court, through a series of decisions between, beginning with McCleskey versus Kemp and then Armstrong versus the United States, has ruled that we cannot challenge these racial disparities now in a court of law. The court has ruled that it does not matter how overwhelming the statistical evidence might be of discrimination. The court has ruled explicitly that it does not matter how severe the racial disparities are. Unless you can offer proof of conscious, intentional bias tantamount to an admission by an officer, they acted with discriminatory intent. You can't even state a claim for race discrimination in our criminal justice system today. So many of the racial profiling cases that I was bringing 10 years ago or more can't even be filed today. The court has closed the courthouse doors to claims of racial bias at every stage of the criminal justice process, from stops and searches to plea bargaining and sentencing. And this has made it virtually impossible to challenge bias in our system today. Because after all, in this so-called era of colorblindness, most officers, like the rest of us, know better than to state our racial biases out loud. Most police officers know better than to say, well, yes, Your Honor, I stopped him. I frisked him because he was black. <laughs> most, most police officers know better than to state their stereotypes or their biases or their racial motivations out loud. But more importantly, so many of the biases and stereotypes that drive law enforcement decision-making today operate on such an unconscious level that many well-meaning, well-intentioned officers can't even admit to themselves their biases. A well-meaning officer trying to do right, do his job, sees a group of young black kids walking down the street, their pants are sagging a bit. Officers think, so I'm going to jump out, frisk them, see if they got anything on them. Thinking they're doing their job. Same officers see a group of young white kids walking down the street in their neighborhood and would never occur to them to jump out, frisk them, have them lie and spread eagle up against the wall. Never occurred to them. Now that officer may not be meaning those black kids any harm, but those discretionary bias decisions play themselves out over and over again, hundreds of thousands of times, guaranteeing huge racial disparities in our system, which the US Supreme Court has ruled we cannot even challenge in a court of law. But of course, being swept into this system with little hope of challenging the bias the got you there is only just the beginning of the odyssey for so many, because once you're branded a criminal or a felon, you're ushered into a parallel social universe in which many of the basic civil and human rights, supposedly won in the civil rights movement, no longer apply to you. Discrimination is legal, countless aspects of your daily life. For the rest of your life, you've got to check that box on employment applications asking, 
have you ever been convicted of a felony? Doesn't matter how long that felony may have happened ago. It may, doesn't matter if it was weeks, years, decades ago. For the rest of your life, you've got to check that box knowing your application is likely going straight to the trash. Many people say, oh, you're making excuses for people. You're making excuses. I mean, when you get out of prison, it may be hard, it may be tough, but if you really apply yourself, you know, you just hustle, get out there, look for, for a job. You can, you can find a good job. I mean, you could get a job at McDonald's or something. Well, getting a job at McDonald's is, is no easy feat if you have a felony record. And in so many of the communities to which people who are branded felonies return, there are no jobs to be found in McDonald's or elsewhere. And some people say to me, well, you know, people could start their own businesses or something. Become entrepreneurs. I said, well, most people coming out of prison don't have a whole lot of money to invest in a new business. But even if they did, hundreds of professional licenses are off limits to people who have been branded felons. In my state in Ohio, you can't even get a license to be a barber if you've been convicted of a felony. Housing discrimination, perfectly legal. Public housing may be off limits to you. Private landlords routinely discriminate against people with criminal records. As I mentioned, under federal law, you're deemed ineligible for food stamps for the rest of your life if you've been convicted of a drug felony. Fortunately, many states have opted out of this ban, federal ban on food stamps, but it remains the case that thousands of people can't even get food stamps to survive because they were once caught with drugs. What are folks released from prison expected to do? You're released from prison, can't get a job, you're barred from housing, even food stamps, food may be off limits to you. What do we expect them to do? Well, apparently what we expect them to do is to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars in fees, fines, court costs, accumulated back child support, which continues to accrue while you're in prison, and then in a growing number of states, you're expected to actually pay back the cost of your imprisonment. And if that isn't enough, well, get this. If you're one of the lucky few, the very few, who actually manages to get a job out of prison, straight out of prison, up to 100% of your wages can be garnished to pay back all those fees, fines, court costs, accumulated back child support. What are folks expected to do? I say, when we step back and take a look at this system as a whole, what does it seem designed to do? Seems designed, in my view, to send folks right back to prison, which is what, in fact, happens the vast majority of the time. About 70% of people released from prison return within a few years, and the majority of those who return in some states do so in a matter of months because the challenges associated with mere survival on the outside are so immense. Now, most of the types of crimes that land people back in prison following their release are crimes of, of survival or even less, infractions on their parole or probation, failure to pee in the cup, to meet with your probation officer on schedule that can land you back in prison, or crimes of survival like theft, shoplifting, passing bad checks, or crimes of despair like drug addiction and drug abuse. But of course, 
Some people released from prison also commit crimes of violence. Now, we claim to care a whole lot about violence, and yet we have created a system which virtually guarantees that millions of people will be unable to work, will be locked out of the legal economy, that will be set adrift. We create masses of jobless people stuck in a perpetual undercast. And nowhere is that more obvious than right here in Chicago. Chicago has been ground zero in the drug war. It was recently reported that more than 70% of all criminal cases in Chicago involve a Class D felony drug possession charge, the lowest level felony. To put the situation here in Chicago in some perspective and to put the violence here in Chicago in some perspective, consider this. The parents of the young men who are members of gangs today, the parents of those young men were themselves targets of the drug war in the 1980s and into the 1990s. In 1999, only 992 black men received a bachelor's degree from Illinois State University's while roughly 7,000 black men were released from state prison that year just for drug fences alone. They are the parents of the young men who now find themselves trapped in the undercast, too often venting their rage and frustration on one another. A 50-year-old African-American man told me recently a story about when he was in prison, he was in federal prison. He had been sentenced to 18 years for a crack offense. And when he left, when he left home, he had young sons. And just as he was preparing for release for his federal prison term, his sons began to join him behind bars. And it wasn't just his sons, but the neighbor's sons. All the boys on the block were coming in too. The generational cycle had begun as father and son found themselves trapped, cycling in and out of the system. Now we have millions of people trapped in the system estimated more than 60 million people with criminal records in the United States today. Cycling in and out, what do we do? Where do we go from here? Now, my own view is that if we're serious about ending this, if we're serious about dismantling mass incarceration, indeed dismantling this entire caste-like system that views people as disposable, for serious about this, nothing less than a major social movement will do. And if you're tempted to believe, <laughs> yes, if you're tempted to believe that something less will do, that we can tinker with this machine somehow and get it right, few reforms here or few reforms there, and get this, get this machine humming back on track again, consider this. 
If we were to return to the rates of incarceration we had in the 1970s or early 1980s before the war on drugs and the Get Tough movement kicked off, we'd have to release four out of five people who are in prison today. Four out of five. More than a million people employed by the criminal justice system would lose their jobs. Most new prison construction has occurred in predominantly white rural communities, communities that are quite vulnerable economically. Now, many of these communities have been sold on prisons as an answer to their economic woes. And very often, the benefits that prisons preside these communities are grossly exaggerated. In some communities, prisons have turned out to be a net loss. But nonetheless, communities across America have now come to believe that their economy depends on prisons. They need the jobs. Those prisons across America would have to close down. Private prison companies now listed on the New York Stock Exchange and doing quite well. They would be forced into bankruptcy. This system is now so deeply rooted in our social, political, and economic structure that it's not going to just fade away. It's not going to just downsize out of sight without a major shift in our public consciousness, an upheaval, a fairly radical shift on our part. Now, I know there's many people who say this is just dreaming, pie in the sky, there is no hope of ending mass incarceration in America. Just as many people were resigned to Jim Crow in the South and said, yeah, it's a shame, but that's just the way that it is. I find that many people of all colors view the millions cycling in and out of our prisons and jails as just an unfortunate but inalterable fact of American life. Well, I am quite certain that Sojourner Truth, Ella Baker, Dr. King, Malcolm, and the many others who risked their lives to end earlier systems of racial and social control would not be so easily deterred. So if we, if we are going to honor them, we have got to be willing to pick up where they left off and do the hard work of movement building. The hard work of movement building. Movement building, I believe, must be on behalf of poor people of all colors. In 1968, Dr. King told advocates that the time had come to shift from a civil rights movement to a human rights movement. He said, meaningful equality cannot be achieved through civil rights alone. Without basic human rights, the right to work, the right to housing, the right to quality education, without basic human rights, he said, civil rights are an empty promise. So in honor of all those who labored to end earlier systems of racial and social control, I hope that we will dedicate ourselves to building a human rights movement to end mass incarceration, a movement for education, not incarceration, for jobs, not jails, a movement that will end all these forms of legal discrimination against people labeled criminals, discrimination that denies them their basic human rights to work, to shelter, and to food. Now, what do we need to do to build this movement? To build upon the work that is already being done in so many communities, including here in Chicago? 
I think we have got to insist upon telling the truth, the whole truth. We've got to be willing to admit out loud that we as a nation have managed to rebirth a caste-like system in this country. And we've got to be willing to tell this truth in our churches, in our schools, in prisons, in reentry centers. We've got to be willing to tell this truth so that a great awakening can occur. Because unlike the old Jim Crow, there are no signs alerting you to the existence of this new caste system. The whites only signs are gone. Whites only signs are gone, but there's new signs that have popped up on employment applications, housing applications, letting you know who the unwanteds, who the untouchables now are. But the lack of signs, the lack of visibility, poses a real problem for us in movement building. Because prisons are out of sight, out of mind. If you aren't directly impacted by this system, if you don't have a loved one behind bars, if you're middle class, live in a good neighborhood, you're white, you can live your whole life and have no idea of what is really going on. I live my life as a civil rights lawyer, not fully understanding what was going on. So if we are going to engage in movement building, we have got to make visible what is hidden in plain sight. We have got to pull back the curtain and help others to see what we have been willingly blind to for so long. And that means consciousness raising. It means having difficult conversations in churches, in schools, in all kinds of settings, forcing people to deal with, reckon with what we as a nation have done again. But of course, just a lot of talk isn't going to be enough. We've got to be willing to get to work. And in my view, that means being willing to build an underground railroad for people released from prison. An underground railroad for those who are trying to make a genuine break for real freedom. Opening our schools, opening our doors of employment, opening our homes, opening our hearts to people who need, desperately need, not just support finding work and housing and food, and they need that, but who also need love, who also need acceptance, who need to know that we believe in them and are willing to stand with them as they make a genuine break for real freedom. But of course, just building an underground railroad is not going to be enough either, shuttling a few to freedom one by one, just as in the days of slavery it wasn't enough to just build an underground railroad and usher a few to freedom. You had to be willing to work for abolition. I believe that today we have got to be willing to work for the abolition of the system of mass incarceration as a whole. And that means ending the war on drugs once and for all. Just end it. We have spent a trillion dollars now waging this drug war since it began. A trillion dollars. We're constantly being told we don't have enough money to pay our teachers. We don't have enough money for job programs, for economic investment in the communities that need it most. But apparently we had a trillion dollars to blow. And we spent it locking people up rather than investing in the communities that needed it most. 
So it's time to shift to a public health model for dealing with drug addiction and drug abuse and stop criminalizing what is ultimately a public health problem for some. And we've also got to end all these forms of legal discrimination against people released from prison, discrimination that denies them basic human rights to work, to shelter, and to food. But last but not least, we have got to shift from a purely punitive approach to dealing with violence and violent crime in our communities to a more rehabilitative and restorative approach. Yes, one that takes seriously the interests of the victim, the offender, and the community as a whole. So we have got a lot of work to do. And if it feels like too much, if it feels like it just can't possibly all be done, I think we've got to keep in mind that all of these rules, laws, policies, and practices that comprise this system of mass incarceration, they all rest upon one core belief. And it is the same core belief that sustained Jim Crow. It is the belief that some of us, some of us are not worthy of genuine care, compassion, or concern. And when we effectively challenge that core belief, all of this begins to fall like dominoes. A multiracial, multi-ethnic human rights movement must be born, one that takes seriously the dignity and humanity of all people. And it's got to be multiracial and multi-ethnic. Because although this war on drugs was clearly born with black folks in mind, it is a war that has destroyed the lives of people in communities of all colors. And the same racially divisive get tough politics and rhetoric that helped to birth this drug war is now leading to another prison building boom, this time aimed at suspected illegal immigrants. So we have got to collect, connect these dots and build a multiracial, multi-ethnic movement on behalf of all of us. But before this movement can truly get underway, I believe a great awakening is required. We have got to collectively awaken from this colorblind slumber that we've been in to the realities of race in America. And we've got to be willing to embrace those labeled criminals. Not necessarily all their behavior, but them, their humanness. For it has been the refusal and failure to recognize the dignity and humanity of all people that has been the sturdy foundation of every caste system that has ever existed in the United States or anywhere else in the world. It's our task, I firmly believe, to end not just the war on drugs, not just mass incarceration, not just any one policy or practice, but to end this history and cycle of creating caste-like systems in America. Thank you so much for having me tonight, and I'm happy to take any questions. Thank you. Thank you. Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. 
The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut, and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.